Escape from Plan A. 如果跟你说我们所谓的民主不是我们的民主，而是资产阶级用以应付阶级冲突，并把人民引入民主的一种凝固。阶级专政的一所偏数，你会觉得离谱，还是会思考民主的限度，还是你会自问政府对谁专政，对谁民主？资产阶级权利已不掩护，国家的阶级性说法律之前人人平等。要你信你的选票能抵过大企业的大股东们的命令，你醒醒，我们平民在这制度里只是投票的机器。没错，有时会发生政党轮替。Welcome to、uh, another episode. Of Escape from Plan A. This is、uh, Teen.、Uh, really excited for this one.、Uh, I guess quick housekeeping.、Uh, I should be responsible and do a little bit of housekeeping.、Uh, we're getting closer on the、um, the Patreon、uh, goal is to get a one one hundred fifty, and、uh, Mark will belt out a tune for you. Breaking news: We already hit that number since our last episode. Thank you so much. Back to the podcast. The we also have provide access to a Discord chat. And it's something that I've I've really found helpful for myself. We just have like a mix of like really interesting people with、uh, really diverse points of view and stuff in the Discord. I find myself, you know, there's just a lot of like good discourse in there. It's not everyone you know on the same page and just reinforcing and echo chambering each other. It's just been really good chat, and a lot of the ideas for the podcast. Uh, have really come out of that Discord, so encourage everyone to sign up. You'll get access to the Discord as well as、uh, bonus episodes every week. All right, so I'm really excited this week because you know we've done I've done a few pods in the past,、uh, you know where where I just like the the one with、um, Diaspora is Red and and Carl Zah and just other voices on Twitter, particularly Asian American voices that I find just really. Interesting, coming from a different perspective that for me kind of opens up my mind, and I always find that that just you know makes for a great conversation. So today, I got the、uh, the communist rapper Xiang Yu. Xiang Yu, how's it going, man? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm good, man. I didn't. I I, I was surprising to hear that you were back in the U.S.、Um, and so I was like, wow, that's perfect. So so we can sync up on time and do this pod. So. So you're in the Eastern Time Zone as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm in New York City. So. Oh, I see.、Um, do you want to just like plug, just kind of, kind of, kind of give a little background on your music?、Um, just I, I have bought a copy of your most recent CD, but I've not been able to check the mail just yet because I just got back home, and so unfortunately, I can't offer a lot of ins. I can't offer a lot of description into your new CD, and and、um, but I'd like to actually hear more about. You know what went into it and what you've done in the past. So my latest album, a single spark or a 星星之火 in Chinese, is a、um, follow-up album from my previous work, which was、um, actually a nominated album in Taiwan called、um, "Bombard the Headquarters" Pao Da Siling Bu. And、um, I guess it's called a single spark because it's、um, it's the first half of a Chinese idiom called "a single spark can start a prairie fire" or 星星之火可以燎原 And it's also incidentally. The name of an article written by Mao in, I believe, 1930, when、um, pessimism was at an all-time high in the Communist Party of China because they had just suffered many setbacks, including、um, 1927 when、um, when Chiang Kai-shek purged、um, purged left-leaning progressives from the KMT, and、um, yeah, the point of it was okay.、Um, times are bad now. But times are also bad for the reactionaries, and what can we do to,、um, you know, spread our ideas and, and basically win. So,、um, I mean, it sounds that it sounds like then that you you must see some parallels between,、um, you know, 
not just that saying, but maybe that time and era and kind of what you kind of see happening uh, in the world now? Oh, hell yeah. Especially um, if you're a communist in Taiwan. It's even worse because you'll start getting into some communist theory or you just start talking about certain things and people just have a knee-jerk reaction because for many decades now, um, there's been um, just heavy McCarthyite anti-communist education and propaganda over there. And um, this this is true for both major ruling parties, the KMT and the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, ironic name, but... I, I saw the video. I think the I think the title of the song. I, I, I forget the Chinese name, but it, the, the, it's some. It's the basic lyric is about determining who's a friend and who's an enemy. Oh, um, um, rumors and slanders. Yeah, yeah rumors Faye. and slanders. Yeah, I saw the music video that you put together for that, um, which I thought was just a really just to give a taste. Of, and I'll play a clip for it. Red salutes, ransom notes. This is for the people. Fuck the U.S. of America, kaka. Say's 朋友 say's 敌人，我们能否追究这问题而不自欺欺人？谁的盟友，谁的利润，是谁给予一分的争斗和牺牲？ Say's 朋友 say's 敌人，我们能否追究这问题而不自欺欺人？谁的盟友，谁的利润，是谁给予一分的争斗和牺牲？ Someone says, you know, there's an Asian American communist rapper in Taiwan who's, you know. Like I'm not, I don't think that the world knows how to interpret that. But when I and I didn't either. But when I saw that video, I just thought it was just a very succinct, tightly made uh, track and video as well. Kind of, kind of just really subverting the the frame, the 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 basic framework by which someone like me, an Asian American, you know, I was born here. My parents are from Taiwan. Um, just kind of views the you know the way that we look at Asia, the way that we look at you know who's a bad per like who's a bad guy, the North Koreans, you know who's a bad guy, the Chinese Communist Party, and I just thought it was such a direct challenge of those assumptions. That track is the fourth song on my album. Actually, it was the first song of the album that I recorded, which um, and I recorded the song in I believe August of two thousand eighteen. And this was before I had an idea of what I wanted to do for the、um, follow-up album for my previous album because it was shortly after I released、um, "Bombard the Headquarters" and I was just kind of burned out. And yeah, but I made the song because、um, producer my my producer friend from the UK Ransom Notes liked one of my songs from my previous album, "Your So-Called Freedom and Democracy," and. We got into contact with one another, and he sent me some. He sent me some beats, and I just kind of sat on them for a while. And then, since I was going to the DPRK or、um, North Korea in September, I figured I shouldn't waste my opportunity, and I should have a song, a music video, no matter how like、um, crudely made. I needed to do something because I mean, it's I guess not really a once in a lifetime opportunity. I could. Always go back if I had the time and money, but it's not like every day when I can just hop on a train in Beijing, go to Dandong, and then end up in Pyongyang. You know? Yeah. It's kind of funny how you say it's so succinct because I really, honestly, threw that song together last minute before.、Um, like it was like I think I recorded it the day before I left Taiwan to go to Beijing. Oh, really? 
Yeah, and I was in Beijing for like two or three days before I went to um, Pyongyang. Yeah, and I think the video was mostly shot in in uh, Pyongyang, right? Like the um, there were some clips. There was at least one clip in the um, Wonsan and one in Hamung. I was gonna shoot more, but um, I succumbed to um, an upset stomach because um, one of the um, foreign guides, I think it was the one from New Zealand, didn't properly refrigerate our picnic food. Oh God! <laughs> yeah. So um. The only people who didn't get diarrhea were the ones who drank soju, like, during the picnic. And it was, like, during noon, so I didn't feel like drinking. But, yeah, yeah if you travel abroad and um, you don't know if um, your guide refrigerated your food properly, just drink some alcohol with the food. It'll yeah, does that really work, huh? Yeah, okay. All right. Um, yeah, I, I think it was succinct, man. Uh, I think it was... Um, I think just because it is so... Uh, unusual in terms of what the kind of imagery and messaging we're getting in America. Especially something you'd expect from, not something you would expect from someone with my background. That's what I want to get into. Yeah, exactly. Because when I first became aware of you, I thought that, you know, you were coming from a, um, a perspective that was really different than, than um, you know, the perspective of, uh, of a Chinese American. And I was really surprised to learn that you were actually born in the United States, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, like, how do I frame this? Like, take, for example, I think you're, you know, most, quote, woke Asian Americans, right? I think we learn a lot about when we learn about, quote, our history. We mm -hmm. learn about Asian American history. We learn about... Um, you know, the, 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 the laborers from Toysan that came here to work on the railroads. We, we learn about um, Chinese immigration throughout, um, you know, the pre-war era. We learn about the Chinese Exclusion Act. We learn about, you know, all these moments in American history. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting is that there's a whole other branch of history that we are connected to as immigrants here in this country, which is sort of our roots in Asia. And kind of like, for example, like my parents... Um, you know, came, uh, you know, they, they, they were, my grandparents were like officials in the KMT. And there was a whole story about, I think, the immigration of, of um, you know, elites from Taiwan to come over to the U.S. to sort of build up uh, diplomat, you know, di build up sort of friendship between the two countries um, for, you know, for, for, for geopolitical reasons. That whole history to me is something that I was not aware of until much later in life when I started talking to my parents about it and just kind of becoming interested in that as more indicative of my history, you know, as, as indicative of my history than, let's say, the, the sort of canon of Asian American history. And then when I found out that you were, um, you know, an uh, ABC, I was shocked. I was like, wow, you, because you, you, you've gone so much deeper into that connection and, and thinking about what that means then um, than me and I as an Asian American often think that I've gone further into that than most others. Um, how did that begin for you? Um, and is that, am I even accurately describing uh, kind of how you feel about it? I think you are because, um, I mean, especially when you talk about um, understanding the stories of your grandparents and them coming to America. And I mean, they probably, if they're like um, officials in the KMT, they probably have stories about um, leaving the mainland to Taiwan, right? Yeah, of course. 
I think um, a lot of it was just curiosity and wanting to understand more about myself when I became um, a, I guess, preteen, early teen, like 13, 14, 15, and just doing a lot of reading on my own. Because, I mean, from a young age, I noticed, um, like, a lot of my mom's, um, well, both my parents' friends, um, they're in the Chinese restaurant circle in the area where I lived. And what what was um, interesting to me was... Even though most of them were from, oh, even oh, they weren't all, all from Taiwan. There were some like you know the Vietnamese Hua people and like some um, um, Hong Kong people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But among the ones from Taiwan, there were um, there was a significant portion that didn't speak um, Hokkien or um, Minanyu or I guess erroneously referred to as Taiwanese, mm-hmm. the um, the dialect. So which and I started asking questions about like why how come if they're from Taiwan they don't speak that so then that's when I um started understanding like the dif- the differences between for example um Bensengren Waisengren or um for the non-Chinese listeners um I guess they literally mean um native province and extra provincial people which refer and extra provincial people refers to the people who um, moved to Taiwan after Taiwan was returned to China following Japan's surrender in 1945. And a lot of the, and they, they migrated to Taiwan from then until the mid-1950s, after, um, around the time when um, the Dachen Archipelago was liberated. Yeah, that was liberated in 54 or 55. So they were the last wave. And even among, like, the different ways of, like, Weissen, and you can see stark class differences. And, you know, you had the soldiers who were tricked into serving the um, Republican army, well, they didn't really have a choice. A lot of them were just like kind of kidnapped because, I mean, the the National Army, Chiang Kai-shek's army just wasn't that popular among the people. And then you also had like the um, the officials and those um, who were close with them, like the higher ups. And yeah, it was just yeah, listening I, I to know all these ta- different like, stories. Yeah, like I, I started talking to my friends about it, but much later in life, like... Y- I think I think maybe the difference is you got curious about this so early on, but it wasn't until like my 30s that, you know, I grew up around a lot of friends that, you know, they they also came from Taiwan. But then, uh, you know, I started learning like there were different routes to Taiwan. Like I had friends like for as an example, like I used to wonder like why some of my friends were Catholic and Mm -hmm. some were not like I'm not you know, we weren't religious. But then I got friends that are Catholic and I started finding out that a lot of like most of the Catholic you know, families that I knew, uh, they came from a different route through uh, Burma, I guess now Myanmar. And they were... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, the reason they're Catholic is because they were taken in by, like, um, you know, refugee camps that were run by the Catholic Church and were converted yeah, they, there. they also, some of them, I don't want to make generalizations, but, I mean, some of those um, KMT soldiers in Burma were involved in the um, drug trade with the CIA. Oh, I didn't know that history. Yeah. Yeah. And then they got funds through um, Pan Am. That's how the CIA laundered money. Yeah. 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 Fun fact. No, it is. You know what? I I, like I don't think any of that's trivia because like like you said, it, it, you know, to me, I mean, I'm not like, you know, I'm always trying to restore a little balance to the mix. And I think like we're so often taught this sort of like pan Asian American history that's like solely focused on, you know, what happened to Asian people when they got here with like yes. almost no context as to where they came from and why. And can I add a thought to that? Yeah, please. 
um, I think growing up, it just I just really hated the fact that um, okay, I understand that like we all we are all East Asians, and like Southeast Asian or whatever, and we're all Asian. But I hated the fact how um, many Asian Americans just primarily identified with Asian, and then seemed mm. to just not have too much contact with their own um their own national cultures. You know what I mean? Right. right. And then um, I mean I understand that too. Um, the rest of America, we are one and the same, more or less. But it just kind of upset me that so many Asian Americans just bought into that, and to me, it seemed like um, a bit like cultural genocide. I think I yeah I think you know I get what, I mean. what you're saying. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's this like huge continuity. Like if you if you if you think about it, there is like this massive discontinuity in like sort of. Um, you know, the biggest legacy that you're really getting from your family, which is like your fam, your, your lineage and your history. Um, and when you get here, I think that I, you know, I, I think it is important. Absolutely. Like I completely support the idea of Asian American studies and, and the creation of an, of a narrative of Asian people in America, but it I, I go deeper. I think it goes deeper. And I think that, you know, it's, um, it's not something that you want to lose, you know, I think there's exactly. a lot of people in America who, who, who kind of crave having that knowledge or having that connection, and yes. to see it being lost within one generation just out of sheer neglect uh, is is sad in a way to me. Which is why, you um, like, you know, the episode with um Diaspora is Red, they talked about boba liberals, and you know, I had many of the same criticisms, but a lot of times I find myself not able to just um dislike them on an individual level because I realize what's happening and that there is that desire to regain what's been lost. But unfortunately, the route that many people end up taking, whether by choice or not or circumstance, is um, attaching themselves to a very commodified version of the so-called Asian American culture, which nowadays is pretty much just drinking copious amounts of boba. And making sure that we appear in movies and stuff like that. Um, oh yeah, and yeah. then but then it's, the good thing is that many people nowadays seem to be um, addressing the problems that I raised. I mean, recently there aren't people upset that Constance Wu, a um, Chinese American, is playing a Cambodian refugee. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I want to go. I mean, for me, I think it actually is. It's it's interesting because. You know, there is there is a part of the Asian American woke complex that will say, "Hey, you know, Asia represents more than half the world's population, and how can you stuff us all into like sort of this one box, right?" And I I totally you know appreciate and get that, and I think that there is an artificial view of all Asians being the same, and I think we've spent a lot of time fighting against that idea that no there's a complex diversity to Asians we're, we're not all the same but on the other hand yeah I, would I mean say it's kind of like the contradiction between um like nationalism like progressive nationalism not like reactionary nationalism like progressive nationalism with internationalism you know right, right. but I mean of, I guess I guess the point I'm trying thing. to make is like you know I grew up with um a lot of you know other other um kids from Taiwan, kids from China, kids from Korea, kids from Vietnam. And the thing I is, think that's you... why you were curious at a later age, because um, when you have like other other Asian Americans around you, 
I mean, you, it, it's kind of natural to just um, identify with one another and be like, hey, well, we're something new or whatever. I'm grossly simplifying it right now. But I grew up in a predominantly white area. So oh, I see. There was none of that. So the only way I could really connect with my culture was to talk more to my parents and um, talk to my relatives when I go um, when I go back to Taiwan. And I see. Et cetera. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think what I, you know, I guess the way I viewed it was just because I had the benefit, I think, of a family that just kind of volunteered a lot of that history to me. Like they just wanted mm -hmm. to make sure I knew some of the basics about, you know, the the you know the the environment in China from which you know in which they were born, why they left and and all these things and um, what I noticed though is that when you get deeper into the history, that you realize that your connection to other Asian Americans there is a history there uh, that's not that didn't take place here in the United States right so like for example yeah. like one thing I didn't know until relatively recently was that like the Korean War. Uh, is largely, you know, may have been largely responsible for why, like, Taiwan was never invaded by the... By... Was, well, I don't, I don't agree with the word invasion because yeah. the PRC was a successor state to the ROC. Sure. So, I mean, because it was a civil war and um, the KMT was in Taiwan, it, it wouldn't have been an invasion. It would have been just a continuation of the previous war. I mean, even in 1949... There were um, other parts of China that had not been liberated yet. For example, I think Hainandao wasn't liberated on until months after the proclamation of the People's Republic. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look in Chinese history, it's a fairly common thing. Like when um, Qin Shi Huang unified China, there was this one part, I think it was called Weiguo, that wasn't unified yet. For another, like, I, I believe a few decades. Yeah. So, yeah. But the Korean War, because MacArth, because um, the original plan was just to give up on the Chang, give up on Chiang Kai-shek. I mean, in America, they were pretty split about it. But then that's why MacArthur and Chiang Kai-shek were just really pushing for war with um, the DPRK to yeah, I mean, um, convince I America. I mean, I think like, I don't fully know. I mean, the history is complicated. And, but, but I think something that's clearly established is that there are definite linkages in history between what happens in one part of Asia versus what happens in another part of Asia. Yes, yes. I'm glad you mentioned that because, um, I mean, um, some of you might know, my father's part of the Chinese diaspora in Korea. So the Korean War really affected me in probably more ways than, um, than you, for example. I mean, this is not a contest, but the fact that it affected my family more directly um, kind of incentivized me to study more of it. And then you you talk about these linkages, and in recent history, like a, a lot of the diaspora in America, like what's the least common denominator? It's American imperialism. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I, think I totally that was agree where you that. were working towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think I get a little, I'm a little, um, I'm a little critical of this idea when, when um, boba liberals, I guess, let's use, just use that term, uh, parrot this line, however well-intentioned that, you know, we're all totally different. We don't really have any, there's no different, like what connects a Chinese person and a South, you know, an Indian person or Pakistani person? And I think actually a lot connects us. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, yeah, a lot connects us. And I think a, a lot of that has to do with like the, 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 the long history of, of resistance of colonialism from the West. 
And that's yeah. as true in India as it is in anywhere, any other part of Asia. And I think that's a huge connecting strand in throughout all of our histories as Asian people. So I, I guess I'm really, I, I'd like to take a stand against this, you know, over identifying with this concept that, you know, Asian Americans are infinitely diverse and we have a million untold stories that are all, you know, unique to us as individuals or to, you know, based on our, our nationality or our particular personal history. No, if you go back to Asia, there's a huge strand and it always comes back to uh, Western imperialism. In the area. Well, definitely. And so, um, I guess I didn't um, elaborate well enough before. I mean, I guess this is the purpose of conversation, but you're definitely right. And um, that was where I was going to get. I mean, it's the, um, you know how a lot of times things that seem like they're opposites don't actually, um, aren't actually in contradiction with one another. This is like one of those cases because it's a very, um, it's something that you have to study a lot to get to firmly understand and appreciate Otherwise, you know, you jump between these two views, oh, oh, we have nothing to do with each other or whatnot, to, hey, we're just all just, we're in America now, we're just Asian Americans. I think both are wrong. And once you study these things, then you'll arrive at our conclusion on this on this matter. Would you agree? I would. I think it even goes further than that. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you hang out with like someone from Nigeria and you talk, you know, they start talking about, um, you know, the history of Nigeria and the history of their family. Again, it's defined by imperialism, uh, by British imperialism. Uh, and there's just a lot of, I think that is a connecting strand. And, and, and I feel like the degree to which like we in, you know, Asian Americans here in America are taught to sort of put blinders on to our connection to, um, you know, our homelands is, um, is a is a is like you said it is a real loss and it is kind of a brainwashing in a way right well notice it's, this exactly and um this is the difference between bubble liberals and people who understand imperialism bubble liberals think that you know Asians are connected because the white man says we're all Asian and that we're all seen as the same in America whereas somebody who understands imperialism would say that we're interconnected because we have common struggles. And, you know, we have a common history and certain things and, you know. Yeah. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot of pressure now, I think, especially in, um, in the, in the contemporary era to, and I think this is a real double, double standard that Asian, like, especially like Chinese Americans right now should really question is like this intense pressure, social and political pressure to like disavow any sense of connection or even fondness for China. And I, I see it to a degree, I think, at least in the, I think it's actually gotten better now under Trump, weirdly. But, but there used to be this heavy pressure for, you know, Korean Americans to, you know, to really participate in, you know, sort of like propagandic slander of, of North Korea as basically like this caricature of, you know, a hermit kingdom. Uh, yeah, which, which I think is just, uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll see like a lot of, um, you know, fr- Korean celebrities like, uh, you know, um, well, you know, they, 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 like Randall Park or Margaret Cho or fuck um, Randall Park. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, like they, they, they have to like cosplay Kim Jong-un to, yeah. you know, help and provide you know, the punchline to a white like joke. Kim Jong-un, 
even if you don't like Kim Jong-un, the fact remains that his portrayal is based on, it only works because we have a lot of them, these racial caricatures of East Asians. Yeah, and 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 it and it just makes the, the the joke that much funnier to a white audience when they get an actual you know Asian face to participate in it. You know, it's like nowadays. You know, back then when they did blackface, they had white people you know painting themselves black. Nowadays, they just you know find a banana to do <laughs> exactly. like the same for Asians. You don't you don't even need to. Um, and the thing of I'm not okay. I'm not saying blackface was terrible. But in comparison to this, at least you know that the intention is just straight up racism and portraying black people in a bad light. Yeah. Whereas now, like, you can say, well, I mean, no, it's not racist. We're just standing up for freedom and democracy against um, Kim Jong Un's totalitarianism. But then, and they, also, and also that we're deeper, you know, that they we're... know nothing about Korea or the DPRK. Yeah, and and also that you know we're we're centering an uh, an Asian American actor, uh, <laughs> you know, and 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 somehow you know I, I hopefully we're past that point, but like somehow you know watching um, you know an Asian American actor, you know, doing a caricature, a racist caricature of um, you know some some globally famous Asian person that we're not supposed to like. Uh, we're not not supposed to respect that. That's like a win for Asian American media representation. <laughs> you know, like these really yeah. twisted, complicated things that somehow we've bought into, and I find it infuriating <laughs> in a way. It's infuri- and, that movie so. is infuriating on on many things. I mean, look at the way Asian women are portrayed. The only time they show up is like when they're overly sexualized. They don't exist as you know people of um, intrinsic value other than you know the male gaze. Oh, of course. I mean, that's just par for the course, right? Um, oh, yeah, I mean, it's just a necessary ingredient to the, um, you know, the whatever that racist U.S. imperialist concoction of, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing is, I, I like, it's not even, like, part of my political beliefs that these things are bad. They're actually, like, harmful for me at a personal level just because I found that it is a sort of, like, you know, maybe I'm just repeating points that I've already said, but that kind of thing is something that is like, you know, and like it's a, it's like basically like a white cultural directive for you to disavow like your own ability to interpret your own history. Definitely. And it's just, it's, it's really, to me, the worst form of like propaganda and mind control I don't yeah. really think there's any other way to put it, to be honest. Like, it's it's literally telling you that, like, this is how you're going to interpret your own history, you know? Yeah, um, and, um, I mean, it dehumanizes not just um, the the leadership of the DPRK, but the actual people, the civilians. They're all seen as a bunch of um, brainwashed drones, when really it's the people who buy into this propaganda that are the brainwashed drones. yeah. Yeah, and it dehumanizes South Koreans too because I mean Korea is a single nation. It's split into two states right now, but it's still a single nation. Right, right, and you know, and and just when you, you know, like um, there's still so many aspects of like uh, what we hold up as, you know, liberal virtue. Um, this is like the thing. For, you, mm-hmm. It's it's a very painful process to relearn things that you've been told all your life, and um, 
I guess this is a um, remnant of the Cold War. I mean, did the Cold War really end? Probably, like, I don't think so. But um, there is pressure in America to prove that, you know, oh, we're the good Asians. We're not the bad, evil communist ones. We're Chinats, mm. not Chi-Coms. We're, um, we're um, Adidas Vietnamese, not red, not, not red flag yellow star Vietnamese, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or we're Pepsi Koreans, not the, you know, probably just offended a lot of people, but... Yeah. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to caricaturize the whole, you know, the, the social pressures to distance yourself from a different. I uh, distance yourself from an ideology that you're supposed to just hold in contempt, while also at the same time distancing yourself from your own people. There's a perfect illustration of this, um, and it, it was one of the events that really opened my eyes to just how pernicious, um, you know, a, a phenomenon this is. There's a, there's a, um, I think he's the editor of the New Yorker Online now, and he used to be an editor at the New York Times, uh, a journalist by the name of Michael Luo. And he has a very similar family background as me. His parents, I believe, came from Taiwan. Um, likely they were, you know, um, uh, you know, officials in the KMT of some sort. And, um, you know, fairly elite background. I think a lot of like what, what we consider as like the elite uh, or the privileged uh, Asian Americans, um, there was like a, there's a core of them that came over really from Taiwan during that, that period when the, you know, pre-Nixon pre where we, you know, Republic of China was still sort of officially, you know, recognized by the U.S., as the, uh, quote, real China. And mm -hmm. he came, you know, I think he was either born here or, or came here really young. Doesn't know, you know, you could tell he doesn't really know much about his history. Uh, and he was walking down the street one day on, you know, in Manhattan in a sort of Upper East Side, nice area. And in some, you know, white woman told him to go back to China. And this is sort of like the time when Trump was elected and there was a lot of sort of xenophobia in the air. And he decided to go to, you know, use, flex his power um, as an editor of the New York Times to write a letter to this woman who, uh, you know, offended him so badly. And I've seen this. And um, the point was just him crying about not being seen as a real American. Right. And basically rewriting his history, you know, accentuating things like, you know, um, that, you know, my parents fled the communists. His child asked him, hey, do, which I don't really believe this story, but he said his child asked him later that night, couldn't sleep, will we have to go back to China? And he's like, no, we're not from China, but some people don't understand this. And it was just like this, you know, how dare you treat me as if I'm actually who I am? <laughs> you know? That's um, kind of interesting because when I was growing up, um, my parents always told me that you can be as whitewashed as you want, but you'll never be seen as a real American. Right. And I mean, some people might think that that's harsh or might think that that's um, bad, but I think it's it's just true. I mean, America is a settler colony. And I mean, think about this. Black people have been in this country for like 400 years. Yeah. And let's be perfectly honest. Are they seen as like, like real Americans? Like a different tier, you know, like a different, I mean, exactly, exactly, yeah, like almost exactly. Like a that's what nation, I'm saying. Different you know? tiers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's this kind of thing. So, I mean, what makes us think that we're going to be seen as 
real Americans when we've been here only for a fraction of the time? And another question to ask is, do we even want to be seen as real Americans, considering what the United States as a settler colony represents? I think in Trump's... um, Oh, yeah, go ahead. And then um, because of this pressure to be seen as real Americans by some Asian Americans, they'll choose to accept these um, things. They'll pander to, you know, for lack of a better term, like they'll pander to the um, the white ruling class or the um, the dominant ideology, and throw not only themselves under the bus to kind of go ahead to kind of um to get some personal gain, but also in the process throw other minorities, oppressed nations, etc., under the bus. But at the end of the day, at what cost? Do you have your dignity? No. Are you seen as truly one of them? No. Yeah, I think um, I got two thoughts to that. One is how history, knowing history, sheds light on this a little bit. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think a lot for, like, there's just no avoiding the topic for (laughs) if you're an Asian guy in America, is the prevalence of, like, white male and Asian female couples. And... I don't want to theorize too much about this. I know it's a sensitive and and complicated topic, but you know, when I, the more I was like, kind of like just looking at history and the relationship between uh, the Republic of China or Taiwan, but officially, you know, at that time officially recognized and America, Madam, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's wife, uh, Sung Meiling, uh, Madam Chiang Kai-shek, who's really famous in America. Um, yeah. I remember we only would, thing know, Chinese about me is my face. One of her quotes. What's that? The only oh, is that right? Right. I, I'm not surprised. Um, and she, you know, if if you look her name up, there's been a lot written about her in recent times, uncovering the history, which I find rather disturbing because I think there is this like salacious interest in her. I mean, I think she was a really like sort of, you know upper class, attractive, educated at Wellesley, you know, woman who kind of gave Americans this idea of Chinese as being tameable and, you know. Yeah, exactly. She's the um, American ideal of what a Chinese should be, you know, American values, anti-communist, you know. Yeah. Wants to make, wants to uh, mold China into what America is instead of respecting the Chinese people and considering what the people want for themselves. Yeah, and and I and I and I was re, you know, if you look her and I'll put a link in the in the show notes um to this article that I found in the Guardian that was pretty recent and there's a new book out about her and it's just like basically all these like just salacious gossip about how she was um here to basically like uh there was a there was a guy who was like running for president he, he's not in the history books anymore, but at the time he was somebody and how she had sort of like, you know, and this is totally, you know, uncorroborated, but the rumors were that she was seducing him. They were having an affair and it was the talk of, it was celebrity gossip, you know, it was like elite gossip. And, you know, there was just this sort of prurient interest in her that, it, you know, I, I was just like, wow, that's, that's really, that's really kind of fucked up, but, but, but also fascinating in a way. And, yeah. um, but I realized it, 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 there was a diplomatic reason for this, like with her, with Madame Chiang Kai-shek and all the geopolitical games that were being played at that time. 
that's just history, right? Like that's that's part of this sort of like, you know, playing of alliances. There was a real purpose to that stuff. And then now I find that um, a lot of the attitudes that were cultivated because of that history remain. There's a persistence to the mentality of the um, obsequious Chinese uh, that is here to sort of make white friends and sort of make them comfortable with us and and, and wow them with our ability to, um, you know, ingest Western culture, play the violin, play the piano, worship, you know, the greats of Western art while completely forgetting about our own. Um, That persists to this day, but there's no longer any mission. Like, there's no diplomatic purpose to it. It's almost like we still are following the mission, but we don't have... There's no... uh, there's no purpose to it anymore. You know what I mean? I think there still is a purpose. I mean, the People's Republic of China still exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the 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 biggest crime you can commit in this world is to stand up against U.S. hegemony. Yes. And whether you consider China to be um, truly socialist or revisionist, you cannot deny the fact that China is a formidable opponent to U.S. hegemony. I mean, the U.S. has enjoyed this status since the fall of the Soviet Union. But of course, if China were to fall, this sort of these sorts of attitudes would still exist, but they were just serving the whole they would just start serving another purpose. Mm-hmm. But the per- but, I mean, a different purpose on the surface, but it's still, you know, U.S. hegemony, U.S. imperialism, neoliberalism. Though, I mean, in this this in this day and age, when I see because, you know, I think um you know, most immigrants from, uh, most Chinese immigrants are actually from the mainland now. And I think yeah. that they carry with them a very different set of attitudes than um, the ones who came from Taiwan, in, in my view. Um, of course. And uh, even the ones who came from Taiwan, if you look at like the different class backgrounds, they all carry different types of views. I mean, I grew up with um, a lot of my mom's my both of my parents' friends in the Chinese restaurant community, and a lot of them came from working class backgrounds. But my mom also had some friends who were, um, you know, scientists or whatever. Mm-hmm. And even then, you could see um, just various cultural differences, class differences, and differences in mentality. So of course, I mean, you talk about the mainland, which is kind of interesting in and of itself because um, a lot of the I mean, you ha- you have um, the people from like um, Fuzhou who come here and work at restaurants, buffets, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You have the scientists who came beginning from the '80s, and you also have the people who came here to study in the past, or like now as international students. And even all of them, they have very stark differences in just many of their views, their mannerisms, their ideologies, their culture, their mm-hmm. backgrounds. So, Yeah, but I guess what I'm, I, I, the second part of it, though, I think, you know, in, in addressing the point you raised about, um, about why, you know, why do Asian Americans seek to sort of, you know, seek to assimilate into whiteness and sort of bleach themselves out? Um, you know, I think for the next generation, right? Like the first generation in a way has the advantage of knowing why they came and from where they came from. Like mm-hmm. they at least have the advantage of like having that sense of purpose. But I think yeah. like there, there's this discontinuity for the second generation for people like you and me where what's the, you know, I don't think we just carry on 
it's it's very hard to say that we would just carry on the purpose that for which our parents came here per se uh that you know when you don't have the formative upbringing you know from your homeland but you instead are raised here entirely within america and you're you know you only have tenuous strands back mostly through your family uh what is the alternative i think that that is the big question i think for the next generation of of the um asian american immigrant is that the ones who are raised here they can't really just emulate uh you know their parents journey right they have to kind of confront the fact that they've been born on a foreign shore with like no you know with no with no connection anymore or with very tenuous connections to any sort of continuity of narrative think of this though mm -hmm. how many generations removed from africa uh, was um, malcolm x or asada shakur or angela davis fred hampton huey newton exactly yeah 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 i mean it, it and of course, their, 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 their struggles were obviously different in certain ways from their slave ancestors' struggles, but in other ways, they were also the same. White supremacy, white supremacy still exists. The U.S. is still a settler colony. U.S. imperialism still exists. And, you know, places like the DPRK are still demonized for um, no reason other than geopolitical interests and... Um, and imperialist gains, you know. Yeah, but I, th- I think that you know, um, you know the the, the ADOS, right? Um, the American descendants of slaves. Uh, you know, they have that history here, so there's a there's sort of a continuity that takes place here, and I think that that was the X in Malcolm X, right? Was to say that there was no purpose to sort of trace himself back to Africa, which I think was sort of in vogue at the time. There was this, there was this yeah. um, belief that, you know, you could reconnect the strands of history for African-Americans back to their source, you know, their, their, their homelands in Africa, which at that point is just kind of, you know, it's just a fantasy, you know, and I think like, to some extent, even something like, you know, Black Panther and this fictional Wakanda is, is still a, a kind of move in that direction. And I think the X in Malcolm X was to say, no, we've got to now, we've got to find our continuity you know, in our direct history here. And so I suspect, and, and I guess this is maybe like what I'd like to see. I think you're answering your own question at this point. Um, I think so. I think that actually over time that, you know, it's sort of like things that like you, what you're doing um, over time, I think the identity sort of reemerges and reasserts itself it, because there, it, like you said, there is no way to sort of assimilate and become white except through simply just like, you know, marrying in and, and, and hopefully, de- you know, sort of, you know, like marrying the Asian out of you, right? Um, yeah. But, but assuming that, you know, even, even mixed race Asian Americans still identify as Asian, like it's really hard to just sort of like get rid of the Asian. And, and I don't that think depends. people even want to do that. It depends, it depends on what kind of mixes. That's true. That's true. Um, but and the way they identify in those cases is an um, indication of the, um, I guess you could say, a caste system in the U.S. It's kind of like the one drop rule never faded. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it depends on also if you're a man or a woman. Um, Definitely. And things like whether, you know, which parent was Asian and things like that. 
Um, yeah. Super, super complicated stuff that's outside my ken, but we've done some pods about it in the past, and I've learned, I've learned about that that it's that it is super complicated and does actually, you know, totally, you know, implicate um, racial caste system in America. Yeah. Um, for I mean, sure. this is also why um, I believe communist internationalism is very important. Yeah. Talk more about that. I mean, internationalism is just the idea that um, we have common enemies and that we should be united in these things while respecting our, our differences. For example, let's say um, a Vietnamese in the National Liberation Front. They are nationalistic in a progressive way. They're nationalistic against imperialism, but then they're also internationalists in the sense that, hey, we have people in you know, in South Africa fighting against apartheid. We have, we have Cubans being surrounded by the U.S. How do we support each other in these cases or voice support or stand in unity against our common enemies? And then international, I mean, I use the word nation as in like nationality. I don't like to... Um, I don't like the way that the words state and nation are used interchangeably in the West, mostly because Western European states emerged as nation states, but I'm kind of going on a tangent, but you know what I mean? No, so, I do. I mean, I think there are artificial divisions in many cases of, um, you know, of people that are not so cleanly divided. Well, that's not even the, that's not even the point, but the point is like, even in America, like when I say like internationalism, I also mean the various nations within America. Like, for example, like Chinese Americans, like Korean Americans, mm. new Africans, or, you know, some people call um, mm -hmm. African Americans, mm -hmm. black people, you know, Latinos, Native Americans. And um, a lot of it, a lot of the, a lot of what's really unfortunate is um, because of the pressure to cave into white supremacy, a lot of, a lot of the Asian American community has thrown the oppressed nations under the bus so then when we're treated, when we receive racist treatment, we're not going to get any support from anyone else. And, you know, sometimes I think we deserve it. It's when something you, we can fix. When you define nations that way, I think that I'm very much on the same page as you on that respect, meaning this concept of the common enemy. Um, you know, I think Asian Americans often get looped into this whole thing. And this happened recently with this whole, you know, Andrew Yang's response to the racist SNL guy. Um, Andrew Yang is a dotard. <laughs> yeah, I've, yes, I, uh, I, yeah, I've, I've taken a similar angle on, on what he said about, you know, a, you know, and, and seemingly like pro Asian things like that. I don't necessarily, I don't think is necessarily obvious as to what the problem is for a lot of people, but it's like, Hey, why is it that you can call us chinks uh, and the guy will keep his job, but like, you know, you can't use the N-word and stuff. And while that is somewhat true, I think the better thing, the better model here is to like understand that the source by which we have to deal with things like racial slurs and, yeah. uh, you know, whatever, it comes from the same place. It comes from the same place by which we even had to make, had to deal with things like, you know anti-black slurs and anti-black racism and all of the sort of like the huge mega problems of of you know white supremacy this is just our our experience of it 
it's it's a rude awakening, and I'm glad it happened because you know, it kind of shows what I've been told my all my life was true that you're never going to be seen as a true American. And I came to the conclusion years ago that hey, I don't want to be seen as a real American. And I've had um, growing I've grown up with some um other Asian Americans, like um a friend from a, a friend who's um Filipino American, and I remember years ago. She posted a status because she was like tra- she traveled the world a lot, went to all these different countries, and she actually got into a heated argument in I forgot which country it was. It was in the third world. When people asked her where she's from, and she said America, and then they were like, "Well, what's your like nationality or your like you know where are you really from?" Mm. And then she made this whole post about how upsetting that is, how um even nowadays she's not seen as a real American, blah blah blah, and I'm like. Well, I would personally take that as a compliment. Right. <laughs> right. But then it's also, how did I get to this conclusion? Because, I mean, all our lives we're told to love America. I mean, I remember after 9-11, when I was a third grader, we had to write papers on what it means to be an American and how there were people on the other side of the world that we don't know who attacked us because we because they hate our freedoms and democracy. Right, right. Yeah, so yeah. then it's like, um, how do you... You can't just convince these people to hate America and be like, well, you're not really American, blah, blah, blah. Because they, if they see America as a good thing, then of course they're going to be upset when people don't see them as American. It's The question now is how do we raise awareness and educate people on this country's imperialism and all these all other heinous activities abroad that in part led to the creation of the, dias- the various diasporas and resulted in us being born here away from our you know ancestral ancestral homes and ha- and why like despite the fact we're still treated as outsiders you know the the question i have for you um which i don't yeah. have I, I i something that i'm trying to gain perspective on is uh-huh. and i think the fact that you've spent time you know in outside of us in in places in taiwan and and also in korea um do you think that there's any meaningful role for Asian Americans to play in terms of, you know, the in terms of resisting imperialism at a global level? Is there any is there there's there's something about the placement of Asian Americans within America and often in, you know, sometimes in positions maybe not of authority but of of insider status, of insider knowledge, is there any meaningful potential in Asian yeah. Americans to contribute to that? Do you know by 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 nature of our actual position here? Definitely. I mean, by it wasn't really our choice, but we're familiar with American culture. We have American friends. We know American people, and I think it is important for us to study our study our history, both within and without the U.S. Understand. And put it in context with, you know, world history and international politics and all that stuff. And then, I mean, at the end of the day, we we are human faces. I mean, you can either be a sellout like Randall Park or you can understand, understand these things and try, try to, um, I mean, it's like, okay, I, I'm against the U.S. I hate America, but that doesn't mean I hate each and every individual American person. That's just, that's just foolish, you know? How do we get more allies? How do we get more people to understand our struggles and go through self-reflection? 
I think that's a very important role that we can play. I mean, I guess you can see us see this on a smaller scale, you know, like growing up, if we brought, you know, Chinese stuff to school for lunch, we got teased by um, our white classmates. But nowadays, they're all like, like gentrified Asian cuisine is the new hot thing. And they want to eat like, I don't know, what have you. They want to go to Eddie Huang's place and eat his um, baozi. So, I mean, that's kind of like, I mean, I don't, okay, that's a bad example. I don't want like all of this history and stuff to be like gentrified as fuck. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like we serve as a bridge between the East and the West. How do we use that in a way? It's like, um, it's like a gun. You can use a gun for good or for bad. Now we can use our positions as the bridge between multiple cultures in a way that, um, perpetuates white supremacy or challenges it i think um that that would be my answer to your question yeah i think i agree with you and i think that um i i suspect you might agree with this too which is that the the trigger so to speak like the degree to which there is some potential within asian americans to sort of like be a part i think of what i would consider the right side of history um which is to fully acknowledge um you know i mean it's not even here's the thing like this is what i want like asian american people to understand like it is not even controversial at this point to say that america commits war crimes like our own mainstream media fully acknowledges this right like through the partisan bickering uh within to the various United States, to various extents but i'm saying that it's not really like asian americans i think a lot of because like we're always feeling like our loyalty is is tested or or in question that we have a hard time criticizing america even to the extent that like white americans criticize america like that's how assimilated oh, we that, are. I, Sometimes I agree we're with whiter you, than definitely. white you know what i mean yeah um, yeah yeah well this is the thing um i think well we're not necessarily compradors but um, I mean, if you're looking at places like, for example, if you look at the ruling classes in Comprador states, there is a tendency for Comprador's to, um, for lack of a better term, try and be more Catholic than the Pope. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. That's the that's what's going on right now, and I think it's which is why I think it's very important to just yes get to that level first, but then try to go beyond that. Um, I think um, if you don't mind, I want to recommend some books that really help me in this regard. Yeah, please. One do, would be um. William Bloom's Against Empire. Wait, no, no, no. Against Empire is by Michael Perini. Well, that's a good book, too. But um, William Bloom's um, Killing Hope. Killing Hope is a book that documents all of... Um, it includes... It's like an encyclopedia of all U.S. Um, US interventions, both um, violent and nonviolent, abroad. For example, like people talk about um, Russia influencing U.S. elections... But do how many people know? I mean, I don't know if it's, I, I kind of think that's bullshit, but let's assume it's true. Russia is simply giving the U.S. a t- taste of its own medicine. How did Yeltsin get reelected in, I believe, 1996? Um, Bill Clinton sent his campaign team over. And these are the same people who are trained to convince people that they need to buy Coca-Cola, you know? Sure. Yeltsin was doing poorly in the polls, but he won re-election thanks to... Um, Thanks to his good friend Bill Clinton's help. Mm-hmm. Now, is this how is this not interference with other people's elections? 
It's exactly what we accuse them of doing to us. Yeah, and like how many people know about, for example, um, the guy in Indonesia. I I keep on getting them mixed up. I'm sorry. Um, There's Sakarno and Sahardo. The one that came first. Um, The U.S. tried to um, find a body double of him and film like pornographic films of him to um, demonize him to his people. But they gave up on it because they couldn't find a body double that looked looked enough like him, which is kind of, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's chock full. Or, I mean, history's um, chock full of CIA fuckery yeah, like that. Or, or like, <laughs> how, how many people know that um, the U.S. overthrew the democratically elected government of Guatemala because United Fruit Company wanted more profits? Or I, what about what what about um, um, overthrowing the democratic leader, democratically elected leader in Iran, and instating the Shah because I, um be, because the leader um pissed off. The, I think it was British Petroleum, and then afterwards the U.S. got like a good percentage of the pro- of the oil profits. Like one 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 that I keep seeing is like I see a lot of uh, people saying that South Korea is proof that you know America, the American model of liberal democracy and free markets uh, works, while North Korea is an example. That's bullshit. So, yeah, it's bullshit. It's completely. It's not just bullshit. It's completely opposite of the truth, which is that. Uh, South Korea only started taking of... off because of state planning. Yeah, and also democracy. They originally wanted. They originally wanted South Korea to just you know be completely laissez-faire or whatever, just make cheap shoes, cheap watches for American consumers. But then the North kept on just going ahead. The the, the South was far behind the North in yeah. many right. In many metrics, and while the U.S. did everything to boost the economy of the South, it's been doing since nineteen since the end of the Korean War to um, suppress the North, the North's economy. You know, yeah. And a lot of the money that South Korea got, I mean, part of it during the miracle of the um, the miracle of the Han River was when Park Chung Hee um, sent his army to help the U.S. fight in Vietnam. And and then it's also a lot of it is also based on the assumption that um you know nineteen nineties North Korea is what North Korea has been all this time, but they don't talk about how in the nineteen nineties the Soviet Union collapsed and um the DPRK almost overnight lost all of its trading partners, and then in addition to that they suffered from two floods and a drought, and then um they were cut off from fuel because the Soviet Union collapsed, and part of the deal with shock therapy was. The, the um the ex-Soviet Union, like Russia, was not to provide the DPRK with fuel anymore. So you don't have fuel. Your industry can't run. Your tractors are worthless. And then you had CIA operatives working on the border regions in China telling because a lot of North Koreans would cross into China during the day to um, try to earn money because things were that bad at home. They would tell them, hey, if you cut off a cow's tail, we'll give you a bag of rice. What's the purpose of doing that? Like, is a cow's tail worth anything? No. What happens is... When you cut off a cow's tail, it, it, it loses balance, right? They were doing all... They use those comparisons, but they don't tell us like the degree of sabotage that the U.S. has carried out against North Korea. Nor do they mention like the generous, genocidal nature of the war. And um, we, we are to believe that the fact that the lie that the, the Korean War was started by Kim Il-sung is the undeniable truth. Yeah, I think we still have this image of the Korean War as sort of... Uh, you know what's 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 shown in a show like Nash, and it's 
these earnest American soldiers going over to Korea and fighting the good fight when Bullshit. largely it was just a, you know, it was just a complete and total aerial devastation of every living thing, basically. Um, yeah. My grandfather was in Seoul when so, it happened. Oh, really? Yeah. I never um, talked to my grandfather because he died before I was born. But he told my dad, I mean, and my grandfather was no communist, but, but he said that it wasn't the Korean people's army that um, interfered with people's lives or, you know, gave people shit. It was the U.S. army and the South Korean army. And then they had this thing where um, when, this, when the U.S. army retreated from an area, they would burn everything, burn like hospitals, like whatever buildings could be used because they didn't want the enemy to have it. But then when the Korean People's Army would retreat from an area, they didn't do that stuff because they saw themselves as liberate as liberators of the country. Why would they like burn these things that the people use? Yeah. The U.S. never saw Koreans, North or South, as um, equal human beings. They were either the enemy or useful pawns. Yeah, I think that, um, and we're at an hour now, I, I think that um, this has been a very... Uh, eye-opening conversation. I think that the, the thing that I'm, ta I'm taking away from this that I, that I would try to, if I could like communicate something to people who are listening is that, you know, when, when someone, uh, when you see something like seemingly, I don't know, um, totally like un disconnected from anything else in American society, but just like out of the blue, it just pisses you off. Like some, guy on SNL calling you a chink or whatever, that understanding that, the, the, the understanding that act of racism or that act of, you know, racial hatred or whatever, you can, that is connected in its own way to a, you know, a, like a, a whole complex, like a whole history that's expansive, like in, 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 in all, in, in all man, it's like a global history um, that includes the types of oppression that we see in the United States, right? So the problem of, you know, racism in America, anti-black racism, erasure of um, indigenous populations, in, if, if that's, I mean, there's no good word to describe them that isn't like inflicted with, you know, uh, imperial bullshit, but let's call them indigenous people. Um, all of the racism that like we see in America, like in the news and whatever, like I think to resist that and to be a part of like understanding that that is common enemy is consistent, I think, with sort of this more global view of, of for example, the colonialism that happened and is currently happening uh, all across the world, including in Asia. Certainly. I think that it, it really does have sort of a central source. And it's not so simple just to write off little things like someone telling you to go back to China or someone calling you a chink and thinking that that is somehow an exception, right? Like thinking how somehow that's an aberration from how things really work in America where everyone gets along and, you know, we're all heading in the right direction. Uh, to see that the things that are happening in America are like fundamental contradictions within our society that reflect the same kind of, uh, you know, imperialism that we engage in outside of our borders. And yeah. I think as an Asian American, then, you know, it kind of gives us, it, you know, to see it that way, I think imbues, 
you know, our existence here with a bit more meaning to say, no, we're not actually cut off from that history, right? Like we are reattached to it, but just in a different point. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's not a series of totally isolated and distinct, uh, um, you know, grievances and things like that. No, it's all part of one thing. And so I think it is important how we think about racism that's directed at us and to, to, to think about it clearly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I certainly agree with that. And um, another thing is a lot of people tend to believe that the U, like U.S. foreign policy has good intentions, but that the U.S. simply makes mistakes here and there, like in Vietnam or whatever. No, Vietnam was no mistake. Vietnam was intentional. The only the only thing the only miscalculation was they didn't think that the um, the, the Vietnamese people would win. Yeah, and there's a whole there's just so much available in in, in English uh, in terms of accessing that history. But um, and and yeah, you know what? Uh, I think you should. Why don't you give me like a reading list or something, and I'll put in the show notes. I think like um, things that that would be um, illuminating. I think for a lot of Asian Americans to see. Um, you want me to do it in a in a message that might yeah, be easier because like I when to, I post I it later, to... I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, um, maybe just remind me later, but I'll definitely do it. I think that's um, yeah, it's yeah. a good idea. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We should we should uh, wrap it up because we usually keep these to um, about an hour. But like, yeah, I think we. Yeah, these are the kinds of conversations I was looking for online, man. I'm glad, you know, people say a lot of bad shit about Twitter, but, um, and they shut you down for calling someone a cracker, which I'm like, really? That's, you know, is that really worth shutting someone down for? Well, I've been um, in Twitter jail a few times for similar things. Ah, three I-, I told him, I think, um, I forgot who, but it was one of those China watchers that basically, I mean, that basically oh, says God, things like, oh, China like, Jesus. yeah, basically. I told one of them if they wanted to be white so much to drink bleach, and I got, like, in Twitter jail <laughs> once, before, once for that. And I think once you go to Twitter jail enough times, like, I think it's like a three-strike rule or something. The fourth time, you, yeah. you just get permanently suspended. Right, and my permanent okay. suspension came from calling somebody a cracker because I was really frustrated in a way that they wouldn't admit that they were upholding white supremacy. Right. And... Yeah, things just got kind of out of hand. And they were just repeating all of the same lies that you hear on TV on, like, the DPRK and, like, Venezuela and Cuba. Yeah. You know, it's and funny because just... they call it China watching, like, bird watching. But the thing is, they're like birds. I mean, they just chirp the same line like like a bird does. Yeah. They just chirp the same song. And it doesn't seem like anything. They don't actually have a functioning mind. It's Exactly. It's the China watching community is horrific. It's just yeah, so and, horrific. Um, on a related note, I want to tell um, tell um, the listeners something. Like a lot of the things that we hear about, for example, countries like countries that are targeted by U.S. imperialism, whether it be like Iran or like Cuba, you need to really think about where the information comes from because they're smart enough to use, for example, defectors or people from those countries to say certain things. But look at who's funding them. For example, Pagyami. Um, one of the leading star defectors from North Korea. She's totally funded by the Atlas Network. And the Atlas Network also spends money on things like climate change denial. And they're funded by the National Endowment of Democracy, which um, the founder of the NED publicly stated that the intention of the NED is to do um, overtly what the CIA used to do covertly because there were too many scandals in the past. And um, they're funded by the State Department. But Atlas Network, in, in addition from NED funding, also gets funding from, like, the Koch brothers, um, ExxonMobil, 
and I believe um I believe MasterCard and just yeah, pe- <laughs> yeah. people with their agendas. So you have to realize why do they want regime change? And I think one of the questions that you wanted to ask me today was um is it possible for us to develop a view like an anti-imperialist view without supporting the PRC or the DPRK, right? Is that yes, something you want yeah. to touch on briefly? Yeah, yeah. And I have an answer for that. Mm-hmm. Nobody's asking you to agree 100% with what's going on within the borders of, um, like, let's say, China or the DPRK. But for one thing is, no matter what your views are, you really need to seek truth, like seek the truth from facts. Really fact check and see what's true and what's not true because there's a lot of lies out there. And then once you know more or less what's true, then you might be able to have your criticisms. But the bottom line is here. You cannot support re- U.S. regime change. Look at regime change in um, like Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya. I mean, there's like fucking slave trade now in Libya after they got rid of Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. Do you really think the U.S. gives a fuck about like, so like so-called human rights in these countries? No, they want profit. They want their own interests. So the only relevant view for us in America is to stand resolutely against this country's imperialism and let people in China and Korea and whatever figure out the um, the real and perce- figure out how to deal with um, those those problems at hand, whether they are real or perceived. You know, for sure, it's a tall order. It is a tall order, <laughs> but you just gotta chip. Away- you just gotta keep chipping away at it, and I think that. There is a there is a tradition in the U.S. of people doing that, and we should be a part of that. I don't think that, mm-hmm. you know, there are really, uh, you know, like some guy I follow on on Twitter, this guy Tim Sharrock, I think, has been, um, you know, really providing, you know, m- you know, more realistic and balanced views that are consistent with how people, I think, in Korea actually see things versus just parroting an American line. Um, or some CIA funded defector. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, man, uh, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, are you, if people want to check you out and, uh, you know, if, you know, look at, hear what, hear, hear your, your albums, things like that, uh, where can they go? Um, my Twitter, I mean, my Twitter and Instagram used to have the same handle, but thanks to the suspension, they're different now. Okay, so yeah, and, I'll, Twitter, and, I'll, and I'll put that in the notes for everyone, but yeah. yeah. My Twitter, my new Twitter is um, at Xiangyu, rapper, X-I-A-N-G-Y-U, rapper, all one word. And um, my Instagram is Comrade Xiangyu, so C-O-M-R-A-D-E-X-I-A-N-G-Y-U. And if you want to listen to my album, you can search for A Single Spark and then my name, on YouTube where you can, there's a subtitled version. So like the whole album is like, has bilingual subtitles so you can actually know what I'm saying. And if you want to support me, you can buy a physical copy on Bandcamp. There is a link on the, um, on the YouTube video. And uh, my Facebook page is in Chinese. So, I mean, I guess unless you read Chinese, there's no point in following that. But then if you can find the other things, you can certainly find that. Cool. All right, man. Um, it's good talking to you. Yeah, nice talking to you too. And thanks for having me on. That's Escape from Plan A for this week. Thanks again for everyone who helped us hit our goal on Patreon. But above all, thank you so much just for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Bye, y'all.
。美国梦是被迫离家背景的时候，跟随帝国夺取的资源，虽然说是在寻找自由。美国梦之所以是梦，是因为一般人只有几岁时才有机会体会这华而不实的童话，不然得不理会现实而以为自己必会起飞，假如起飞就以为自己不可能被击坠。想起我七岁开始领会和谐家庭多么一岁，问题一堆，债务积累，生意不好，夫妻敌对，为了撑起幸福家庭，门面父母过着疲惫的日子，希望儿子的社会经济地位能在逝世事之前发生好转，因为这样才能。